Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to there we go. Turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Uh, in, in a sense, finally, back in uh, Genesis, um, stepping back into our exposition after having spent nine weeks understanding the fullness of the Bible's teaching on the institution of biblical marriage, initiated in Genesis chapter 2, 24. That was our inspiration. That was our springboard, if you will, when God made the woman and gave her to the man. That means it's been over two months since um, we have been in Genesis. And so because of that, at least formally, right, because of that, I'd like to take a quick uh, moment to quickly rehash what, what we have learned leading up to this point in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, we learned of the origins of the physical universe. Uh, we learned of, of the origin of time, of space, and of matter in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? In the beginning, uh, we, we find that being a, a definition of time. God created the heaven that being space, and earth, that being matter. So those three essential elements that we know from science that created this, that, that, that is this world, time, space, and matter, we find that realized in that first verse in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We see that he did not just create the physical, but he also created the spiritual, including at that time we would believe the angels. And take note of that because that is going to come up today. We also learned of the origins of the moral universe, of light and of darkness, the context of that being that which is right and that which is wrong, that God created a moral order so that when we recognize that there is a moral order in the world, it is not an order that has been defined by society. It is not society and culture. It is not an evolution of society and culture that has created the moral order that we see, what is right, what is wrong, but rather it is an indelible creation of God from the very beginning, from the, from the very beginning of the created world, God set in order the way that this world would work, not just that he created the, the, the elements of physics by which the, the things would operate, but also the moral order by which the worlds and the universe would operate at that time as well. We also uh, saw and would believe that, that the angels were created in that light context. In this ecosystem then of God creating all of these things and he creates uh, the, the moral order and he creates the physical universe and he creates animals and he creates trees and all of these things, we see a, a special and a unique element of God's creation and that is a creation that is called mankind. He was special because he was unique among the other elements of creation in that he was made in the image of God. Not that man looked like God in appearance, because the Bible says God is a spirit, right? And we uh, are, are physical. So it's not that we look like God in appearance. That's not what it means that man is made in the image of God. But much to the contrary, what it means that man was made in the image of God is that, um, like God, man would be a three-part being. God it has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And man is body, soul, and most importantly in our context for today, man is also spirit. And that man has a spirit literally indwelling or housed in this physical body means that he is able to understand, to interact with, and to commune with the spiritual. So whereas the animals that are around us uh, are, are material beings, they cannot commune with the spiritual. 
spiritual. They do not have interaction with the spiritual in that way, yet we know that man himself is a spiritual being and thus has that relationship to God himself. To that end, we can know God and we can relate ourselves to God. And indeed, this is what we find to be so, that God made man in his image after his likeness and God made man with a specific purpose, to have a relationship with man And he gave man dominion over the earth. This means that man was given the right to freely use the earth's resources. And we see that. And also to be a steward over the earth, which God has made. So we have the right to the resources of the earth in order to uh, accomplish the purpose of human flourishing. But we also are, by virtue of the dominion, given the responsibility to be a steward over the earth which God has given to us. And in Genesis chapter 2, we learned more then about God's design and our part, mankind's part, in God's design. We learned that God established a Sabbath rest. And we talked about what that Sabbath rest is. In Jewish history, of course, that was the seventh day of the week where they would take that day of rest. As we step into the New Testament church, we see that a Sabbath day of rest in the physical sense is something that the Bible does not require of the, the Christian. And yet we do see, according to Hebrews chapter 3, that that Sabbath rest that God established on that day in Genesis is a foreshadowing of the redemption of Jesus Christ and leads us into the nature of how it is that we are to live in a redeemed state, living moment by moment every day in a perpetual state of, as it were, rest in Christ. We learned that man was given a purpose on the earth. He was placed in the garden and he was commissioned to dress that garden and to keep it. We recognized from that that the earth was not cursed yet, and but God had already given man labor, which tells us that labor, that work, that, that the idea that man is going to toil with his hand in, in, in a manner of purpose is not a bad thing, but it is a God-ordained element of what God has created mankind to do. We were talking uh, this week, Joel and I, I were, we're down in Tennessee, and one of the things that, that, that uh, our friend there uh, um, was talking about regularly is, is what, what he calls the dominion mandate, that God has commissioned mankind and built into mankind the, the desire to, to exercise dominion over his environment. And uh, this idea, this purpose, this element that God gave to mankind, this duty to dress and keep the garden, to exercise dominion over his environment, uh, is very much one that we see the purpose that God has given to man. And that, that purpose includes labor, includes work, includes us digging in, no pun intended. We learned that there were two trees, unique trees in that garden. We were introduced to those unique trees. One was called the tree of life. We'll see that a little bit later in Genesis chapter 3. And the second was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll focus in on that tree over the next couple of weeks more specifically. We learned that God has given man, had given man at that time, free course to enjoy the fruit of every tree in the garden except that one, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil promising that the day in which they would eat of that tree, they would surely die. We talked through why it was that God would even put that tree there. Why would God put a tree in the garden if he didn't want them to take of it? Why would he put that temptation there? We walked through all of that. We answered those questions for us. Of course, if you did not get those or if you don't recall those, it's all online, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. And finally, we learned that when God saw that man was alone, he said it is not good that man is alone. And so he put Adam to sleep. And of his rib he formed 
a woman to be his helpmeet, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And then as we considered for the past two months, in giving woman to man, we find that God created the first earthly institution for the direct benefit of mankind. And that institution being biblical marriage, a one flesh union between a man and a woman, one man and one woman for life. And this brings us to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to someone new. If we think of this as introductions, now many of you are familiar with Genesis, but what I've tried to encourage you to do as we've walked through the text is to imagine this, the, the, the text and the context without all of the preconceived layers that, you, that we add on top of it. What would a person, if they were reading, if they knew nothing of God, if they knew nothing of the revelation of God, and they jumped into Genesis and they were reading and they had the time and they were actually thinking through it in, in the manner that is presented, what would they come across? And so that's where we talked about the various elements of time, space, matter, the beginning of the moral universe, the beginning of the physical universe, the purpose for man. These are all things that we we are drawing out of the text, but that the text is in fact laying out for us so that as we would read Genesis, if we read Genesis really 1 through 11 with a, a, a measure of illumination and wisdom, we would, we would be able to glean from it really all of the insight into the condition of man and why we are where we are today. And then the rest of the Bible is the solution, right? And, and, uh, and then the end being uh, God's final uh, God's final plan for us. So we're introduced to someone new. There's a new character that comes into the narrative. We have a new historical person that we are introduced to. And like with every part of Genesis thus far, we're only given a little bit of a, of a glimmer of it, a sliver of him in the actual context of Genesis. We're introduced to someone and we will find very quickly that this is a bad person, that this is an enemy. We're not going to learn much else in Genesis 3 about that, but I'm going to fill in those gaps today. And we're going to talk a little bit of an introduction to this enemy, one who we know as Satan. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now I'm not going to get into the second half of this verse today. I'm really only going to introduce Satan. We're going to talk about Satan, who he is, what he's about, where he came from, and those things. It's going to be a little bit more to that level of, of an academic sermon. I'm not going to have a whole lot of, uh, of, of application today. Uh, we're just going to lay out an understanding so that as Satan begins to interact with Eve in the, in the, the sermons that are to come, that we'll have a good reference point to understand who it is that we're dealing with and why it is we believe, in fact, that this is Satan. I'm saying it matter-of-factly. I'm going to tell you today why I believe we can say that matter-of-factly. See, because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we are not introduced to now Satan or now the devil. We are introduced to the serpent. And we're given a couple of characteristics. First, he is subtle, the Bible says. The Hebrew word there means cunning, clever, crafty. It's used 11 times in the Old Testament. Only here it's translated subtle. It's found two times in the book of Job, and there it's translated crafty. And then it's found eight times in the Proverbs. And every time it's translated in the Proverbs, it's translated prudent. Now take note of that. If I were to say someone is prudent, you would not have a negative connotation there. It means that they, are, they have thought through things, they are careful, and they are taking their steps carefully, deliberately, and such. 
But if I were to say they are crafty or they are subtle, there might be a significantly more negative idea to it. But take note of the fact that the word here is not directly negative. It doesn't mean that he, he that, that, that this serpent is directly, it's, it's not a, a directly negative word to describe him. It's a characteristic that is bound to the character of the one exercising it to determine whether or not he will use this trait of subtlety, of craftiness, of prudence for good or for evil. Now, the second thing that we find here in the text is that this serpent is, in fact, a beast of the field. And specifically, as we've said, a serpent, a reptile of some sort. This characteristic gets a little more, and and I I hate to even say this, um, but you might run across this characteristic being somewhat controversial as we connect the serpent historically to the one that we call Satan. I've actually heard it said before, well, pastor, the text isn't saying that an actual serpent spoke to Eve. The text was calling Satan a serpent. In other words, the idea that he was deceitful or poisonous, right? We have that idiom today. If, 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 if someone was introducing, if, if, if two people were talking and they're like, yeah, you know that Pastor Wickler guy? Yeah, yeah, he's a real snake, right? You would not assume that Pastor Wickler slithers around on his stomach and, and, uh, and, and you know, lives in holes and, and likes to sun himself on rocks during the day. You would assume that that means that I am backhanded, that I'm a liar, that I'm a cheat, that I, am, I, I, I say one thing and do another, that, that sort of a thing. And so people will say, well, that's what they were saying. That was the idiomatic expression to describe Satan as one who is that way. I've also heard it said before, well, pastor, here's the thing. You, you, you keep saying Satan, but nowhere in the book of Genesis is it said that the serpent is Satan. So why do you keep calling him Satan? And I'd like to talk about each of those. And that's actually going to form a, 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 a portion of what we're going to talk about this morning, trying to iron out in our minds the thinking. Now, again, as we interpret the word of God, we always allow what is clear to interpret what is not clear. We, we, we always allow what is more sure, foundational doctrines to override things that are, are, are less foundational. And this is just the nature of proper biblical t- interpretation. Uh, so what we'll do then is we'll, we'll start with the idea that we're looking for any corroboration as to whether or not this serpent can be identified and whether or not indeed this is a serpent literally or this is spe- simply speaking of a characteristic of the one with whom they are interacting. Is this an actual serpent speaking to the woman? And as we think through this, we would admit that that would not be the natural conclusion. It would make a lot more sense from a purely natural perspective for us to say, it's not an actual snake talking to the woman. It's a person who is like a snake. Why? Well, because we know snakes don't talk. Right? So that's... that's Point, that's point of evidence number one. No one in here has heard a snake talk. I can feel pretty confident in saying that, right? So, so we've got this data point. Now, they are able in their own way. Many animals are able, even snakes, are able in their own way to communicate. They can affect rudimentary communication with humans. We see this most often in domesticated animals, such as dogs and cats, who are able to make it very obvious when they're hungry, when they're bored, when they're upset, when they're sad, when, and the like, right? Dogs and cats are very able, domesticated animals, horses and such as well, very able to tell you how they're feeling and communicate, though it's still rudimentary. But we do even see it in wild animals, and in fact, even in serpents themselves, they are able to communicate. Snakes coil, they hiss, they whip their tail, or they rattle their tail if they have 
happen to have a rattle. And we know when we see that, that the serpent is feeling threatened and they are warning us, right? So there is a rudimentary communication that can happen between uh, animals and humans. But what we find here in the text is entirely different in kind, isn't it? The serpent is speaking to the woman in intelligible words. And this has led some to believe that, in fact, the text does not actually say that a snake is, being, is, is speaking to a woman, but rather, again, that the person speaking to the woman is a snake in the idiomatic idea. Now, there's reasons to believe that this could be so. We read in the Psalms, Psalm 53, verses 3 through 5, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of the charmers, charming never so wisely. So here wicked men are likened to poisonous and unruly serpents. The context here is of a, uh, the, the first one, of course, the poison of the serpent is naturally the idea that the wicked man will bite you when he finds himself in a place where he has no other, no other um, option before him, perhaps not even. But then we also see they are like a deaf adder that stoppeth her ear. And that context uh, speaks of a snake charmer. Snake charming is not something that we have here in the Western world quite readily. But if you go over to the Orient, if you go over to India, you would uh, still be able to see and, and find snake charmers. Now, the snake charmer, the idea there is that through their skill, they are able to control the actions and reactions of an otherwise poisonous serpent. But it was believed throughout history that Adders, called here the deaf adder, uh, which is a type of serpent, were in fact deaf, that they had no capacity to hear, or as we would understand it more, yes, they hear, but they also sense the vibrations, right? And so with music, there's the, vib- the, the vibration element of music and the snake charmer, and that those vibrations somehow uh, seem to cause snakes to, to react a certain way. And it was believed that adders were deaf because they were uniquely resistant to snake charmers, and they have been throughout history. And so they say wicked men are like that. They are like adders. They are poisonous, and they are also unruly. They're unable to be controlled. They're, they, they, don't, they don't fit into the normal paradigm of expected morality. They will go outside of the bounds of the rules in order to get what they want because they are, in fact, wicked. We see a similar analogy in Psalm 140, verses 1 through 3. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man, which imagine mischief in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Selah. So once again, the wicked man here is likened unto a poisonous adder. And, and, and so we see a precedent for the idea that there is the idiomatic expression in the Hebrew that would allow for one who is wicked to be described as a snake. Now, the final piece of the puzzle in answering this first question regarding whether or not uh, the creature was literally a serpent or was just a like a snake is contained in some senses in the second question that we ask of which is whether, uh, when we're asking whether or not the serpent is Satan, right? That's the second question. The first question is, is the serpent actually a serpent? And the second question is, is this serpent Satan? So when we answer that second question, we'll see a little bit more about the first question. Say, Pastor, why do we assume that this serpent is Satan? 
Genesis 3 certainly does not call the serpent Satan. Now, all throughout Jewish history, it's been understood and assumed that the serpent is the devil. And I caution you about this. One of the things that pastors can do, and it's not necessarily invalid, but it's not strong, is they can go to historical arguments traditional arguments in order to try to prove their point. Well, Jewish history has traditionally understood the serpent to be the devil, and it's been that way all throughout Jewish history, and we see that to be true. And of course, they were a lot nearer to the original text than we were, so they must have been right. Well, they sure weren't right about Jesus, right? So the idea that simply because Jewish history, uh, it's always been understood to be a certain way in Jewish history, some concept in the Old Testament is not a good argument for why something should be or should not be as it relates to the Bible. We need something more than that. And we do have that. And ironically, here we are in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We find the substantive reality of this as it relates to our context in the final book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read of Satan being cast out of heaven in chapter 12. And the Bible says this in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, and he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with them. So here we see a verse that connects the person Satan, a word meaning adversary or accuser, to the identity of the devil, a word meaning slanderer, and is also called that old serpent. Now, we understand that the Bible is one book, right? It was written over thousands of years, but because it was all written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God had a direct hand in writing the entire Bible, it is one cohesive book. It is not contradictory. It is not a bunch of men who had their own ideas, who penned them, and it just happened to work pretty well. It is that God, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to the very end of, Gen of Revelation, wrote it to be one coherent whole, one cohesive book. And if we treat this as one cohesive book, and at the end of the book, we are told about that old serpent, we're going to go looking in that book for where the author originally introduced to us the concept of the serpent and how the serpent was used. And if we go to this same book and we look for that old serpent, we are going to end up in Genesis chapter, chapter 3. He is that old serpent, right? That is the old serpent. And so once again, you know, we could argue that it's idiomatic that at this point I don't have more proof to make things more definitive. But for me, when I see that old serpent being connected to one who is already the accuser, right? The devil, the slanderer. If I'm reading my Bible, the serpent is called the devil. The, the devil is called that old serpent or Satan is called the devil. The devil is called that old serpent. And I'm connecting this to the serpent who beguiled Eve in the garden. And I'm connecting the identity of the serpent directly to the identity of Satan himself. So that I believe we can have a good measure of confidence that the serpent in the garden was in fact Satan. Okay, so back to the first question then. If serpent can be an idiomatic expression for someone or something that isn't physically a snake, but carries the characteristics of deceit, or perhaps poisonous in the idea of being a wicked person whose words are poison or however we would describe it, then perhaps there is precedent for this. Then perhaps that is what is being said here. And all things being otherwise equal, 
an idiomatic understanding of this statement would be the easiest for us to wrap our mind around because snakes don't talk to people. But in this case, things are not equal, and that for two reasons. First, it's right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. When the Bible speaks of the serpent in this context, he is being directly compared to other beasts. The serpent was more cunning than any beast. Now, you could say, okay, well, that's because he wasn't a beast. Yeah, maybe we could say that. But that wouldn't be the natural understanding of how we'd read that sentence, would it? He's being categorized here as a beast. And then elevated above the other beasts in this one particular characteristic, which is that he's more cunning or he's more subtle. So then we'd understand the serpent naturally understand it to be a beast of the field. I could get over that one if we didn't have the second one. But the second thing that we find is in Genesis chapter 3 a little bit later. We'll study this some, some, sometime down the road. But when the woman and the man, when, when the woman is deceived and the man yields himself to this lie of Satan, lie of the serpent, let's call it that for now. We've already established the Satan thing, so I can call him Satan. When, when, when they yield to the lie of Satan and then they, their eyes are opened and they, they understand good and evil and, and they hide themselves and then God seeks them out and they are found and God asks what happened and the man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent and then God starts to curse, right? And when he curses the serpent, the, resulting, uh, the, the curse upon the serpent resulted in a characteristic which is unique to snakes, right? Namely, that they move on their bellies and they eat the dust. Snakes sense their world through their tongue, so they're constantly licking the dust that they're crawling on in order to understand where they are and what's happening. And they move on their bellies. Now, if it turns out when we get to heaven that Satan is actually a fallen angel who was relegated simply to slithering on his belly, slithering on his belly and eating dust for his whole life, uh, which we would not presume because he's a spirit so he doesn't need to eat, um, then we might say, wow, we stand corrected. The serpent was actually just a spiritual being and, and, and had no connection to the physical serpents of our day. But again, that would have to go way outside the scope of our understanding of the angelic realm in order to try to reconcile that. And, and that doesn't make sense interpretively. When something is called a serpent, is connected to and compared with the animal kingdom, and then is said to move on his belly and eat the dust all the days of his lives, and we look at a serpent and we say, that is what a snake is and does. That becomes our natural interpretive framework, leading me to believe with confidence that this thing which spoke to the woman in the garden was, in fact, a snake. But, of course, not in the way that we would understand a snake today. First, because presumably until the curse which happens in Genesis 3, 14, uh, 14. I didn't read that. Let me read that now. And the Lord said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. It would appear that the original snake did not move on his belly or eat the dust, right? We would presume that because that was the curse. What does it mean? Well, we don't know. We can't know. It's not really, thus it's not worth wasting our time speculating per se, but perhaps he would look more like other reptiles and have legs and crawl rather than slither. And so that's the first thing about snakes today that would not necessarily have been like a snake when 
he first approached Eve. Second, it would appear, as we've said, that this snake could talk. And that brings us to some questions. I have some questions about that one, right? Why could the snake talk? Could all beasts talk? What's going on there? Now, we have connected the unique capacity of humans to reason, to commune with God, to do all of those things, and we've connected that to the image of God and man. We find that humans have a, a uniquely high capacity of communication because of the reason that we've been given, and, and we've connected that to the image of God and man. If all the beasts could talk and reason, well, then are men actually unique? And these are difficult questions, but questions which are generally answerable when we remember that the serpent is, in fact, just a beast. But not just a beast if Satan is also involved, right? If Satan is involved, then we have something else entirely happening. We're aware of the ability of spirits, biblically, to take over material bodies, right? In Luke 8, Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee, and he travels to Gadara. There's a man there, which we call the demoniac of Gadara, The Bible says he had been taken with devils for a long time. He wore no clothes. He lived in tombs. Every time they tried to restrain him, he was able to break the fetters. They tried to tie him up with ropes. He'd break the ropes. Superhuman strength. Living in tombs. Running around a wild man. And Jesus interacts with this man. Jesus gets off the boat, Sea of Galilee, into Gadara. And this man actually comes running up to him. And we read the interaction in Luke 8, beginning in verse 30. The Bible says, And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. In the synoptics, we'd see there, Legion, for we are many. And they besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. So here's a man possessed by a legion of devils, right? So there's not just one devil in him. There's many devils in him. I've been wanting to talk about this a little bit as it relates to some modern things with uh, the modern incarnation of, of um, um, uh, disassociative identity disorder. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. These devils, however, not only controlled his actions, but notice, and not only gave him superhuman power, but notice that when Jesus spoke to this man, and this man was flesh and bones, who spoke back? It was not the demoniac, the man. It was legion, for we are many. He gave his name, and when he gave his name, it was the name of the devils. And they, they, they interacted as a single unit, but they were many. We are many. One man with many devils inside, speaking his words through the mouth of this man. Yes, Pastor, but we're talking about a man. He had the physical characteristics necessary to form words. He had a tongue. He had a mouth. He, he had, in theory, learned how to talk when he was a child. The spirit takes over his body, and he's able to use all of those physical characteristics to bring out the words, which perhaps the man already knew, that he could already form with his tongue, these sorts of things. This makes sense, but snakes don't talk. Could a snake even form words with the kind of tongue he has and the mouth he has and all of those things? Um, well, you know, that, that's a good question. But remember that this is also not the only time an animal has talked in the Bible. If we go back to Numbers chapter 22, we find a donkey talking to Balaam. 
The mouth of this donkey was opened. She's given the capacity to actually reason with her master. And in that case, she was speaking from her personal experiences. Why are you beating me? Have I not been a good servant to you, right? And so there is, again, precedent in the word of God for this idea that a spiritual, uh, that there can be a spiritual capacity to use the body and we know that spirits can do that, to use a material physical vessel to speak through and to others. All of this to say that while an actual serpent speaking is not the most natural of ideas, the idea of a spiritual being, and spirits are very real, we know that. And we know that demonic possession is a very real thing. And the capacity for a spirit to enter into a a material vessel to overtake that vessel to accomplish his purposes is not outside the realm of biblical reason. It's not even unheard of. And so as we take all of this into account, when we put it all together, the plain reading is the fact it would seem the best reading. That in the garden there was a serpent. We don't know what that serpent looked like because they look different now because they have been cursed. The serpent was possessed by Satan and thus was given the capacity to speak into reason with her, not in his own capacity, but through the spirit that is Satan. And, if the, and, and the only and final question then that le- this leaves unanswered is, if this was a unique and unnatural event, then why did the woman respond the way she did? Like, if a, if, a, if a snake came up to me and said, good morning, pastor, I'd be a little bit nervous, right? I would not just start, oh, good morning. Like, what's going on? And he says, you want to eat of this fruit? Like, That's not a bad idea. The snake's talking to me and kind of got some good thoughts. No, I, I, there would be a process of trying to reconcile myself to the fact that this thing that's not supposed to be talking is talking to me, right? What about, what about Eve on this? Now, this is a question that I can't answer for you. I... I, I uh, I, I can't go to another Bible verse and reconcile this, except that Balaam did the same thing, right, with the donkey. He's just, he, the donkey starts complaining, and he just starts talking back. I don't, I don't, I don't understand that, but um, there's a couple of different things here. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it is that all of the events of Genesis chapter 2, and I've, I speculated this already, right, happened fairly quickly, right, as far as Adam being commissioned and then the woman being created. And remember, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And so it's possible that both man and woman were fairly new to the created order and they had not necessarily yet fully comprehended all of the rules or the order of said creation. They don't know what talks and what doesn't. They don't know all of that just yet because they have not fully interacted with the created order, possibly. Perhaps like with Balaam, the circumstances at hand were of such importance in such importance in the moment that the uniqueness of a talking serpent was kind of a back burner issue. In the same way that when Moses is seeing a bush that's on fire but not burning, and then a voice starts coming out of that, uh, yes, there was a, a, a reaction, but, but it's kind of like, okay, something strange is happening here, but I'm going with it because it's actually happening, because my senses are validating it's happening, so let's see where, where this is going, right? Either way, what I believe is clear enough that or it's, it's what, what I think is clear enough that's where I'm going with this is that either way 
In the garden there was a serpent. The serpent was possessed by Satan, spoke to the woman, reasoned with her, and for one reason or another, there was a willingness to reason back. And again, outside, that, that's, that doesn't fall outside of biblical precedent. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to briefly introduce to you Satan. Who is he? And why is he introduced into this narrative? So I'm going to go outside of Genesis a little bit more, and I'm going to tell you what we find in the Word of God in a brief uh, synopsis about who Satan is. And that's going to give us the foundation necessary so that when Satan begins interacting with Eve next week, we'll have the context to understand why he's doing what he's doing, where he's coming from. The origins of Satan are somewhat sparse in Scripture, with only a couple of hints along the way. Now, we saw already from Revelation 12 the connection between the serpent and Satan, also called the great dragon and the devil. Now, devil, as I said, is a descriptive word which means slanderer, a word meaning one who lies and who lies with malicious intent to distort, to twist, or to deceive. And it's used well beyond just Satan in the scriptures. But the Bible says he's not just a devil. He is the devil. Now, if you know your grammar, you know that, the defecant, the, that a definite article, when placed in front of a noun, changes the manner of how that noun is understood. It goes from identifying character or a quality to, to identifying an identity. So in that he's called the devil, we see that he is not just by character a slanderer, but he is by identity the slanderer, Right? And he's also called Satan, a word which means accuser. And once again, it's a descriptive name intended to define him and to connect his identity to his character and that being of one who accuses God's people. Now, there are a couple of Old Testament passages which uh, the, the characteristic interpretation of them has identified them as speaking of the origin and identity of this one who we call Satan. And through those, the best we can tell from Scripture, his actual name is Lucifer. It's a name which is also descriptive. The name Lucifer means shining one, light bringer. Some will say morning star. And the first insight we have into his origins is in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah 14, we read the, this. The Bible says in verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So in Isaiah 14, we're introduced to a person named Lucifer. Light bearer, who has fallen from heaven. He is said to be one who weakens the nations, to be the one who in his heart believes that he could overthrow God, that he could ascend into the mount of the congregation in heaven, that he could exalt his throne, not just above the angels, but above God himself, and that he could thus be like what God is described here as the Most High. So he is one who in his pride was lifted up to believe that he could become God himself. He could claim dominance or dominion over God. And the prophet declares that Lucifer would instead be brought down to hell. Now, he's not there yet. Much uh, very unlike the movies. 
the devil is not abiding in a place called hell. And it's not a place of partying, and it's not a place of fun, and it's not a place of such things. Hell is a place that right now is occupied by those who did not believe on the name of the only begotten Son, and they are in torment. We read about that in the book of Luke with the rich man and Lazarus. But Satan is the god of this world. He is free right now to deceive and to destroy. Now, we also have what many believe is an insight into the character of this one Lucifer in the person of one called the King of Tyre. In Ezekiel chapter 28. I've preached through Ezekiel before. It was pretty early on, so if you go back and listen to them, I might be a little different. I was pretty young then. Um, But if you want to know all about the ins and outs, about why we might believe, you'll hear references to my little girls, and that'll actually be my 10-year-olds now. They'll be, you know, would have been young at the time. Why we might believe that the king of Tyre is in fact Satan, rather than a king of the city called Tyre, And you can go and listen to that if you want to get all of the ins and outs of that. But the short version of it is this, that there was a prophecy in that chapter against the prince of Tyre. And as the Bible describes this prince of this city called Tyre, the description of that that prince bears all the marks of an earthly leader, rich, powerful, wise, everything that a, a earthly king would, would seek unto, his, his, his capacity at commerce and, and, and his economic capacity through the roof, right? But then after the curse on the prince of Tyre, there is a curse upon one called the king of Tyre. And the characteristic of the king of Tyre is not material in nature. Much to the contrary, in Ezekiel 28, we read this, beginning in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, the diamond, beryl, the onyx, the jasper, and the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes, that would mean uh, his, his voice, right? Was prepared in thee in the day thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. Now, as you read through those verses, the man who, uh, the, the person who walks upon the mountain of God, the stones of God, calls him in the, the exalted cherub or the anointed cherub. He says that he was perfect in the day that he was created until iniquity was found in him. He talks about being cast out of the mountain of God. He, he had dwelled in Eden. We see all of the marks of this one that we can go all the way back to the serpent in Eden. We find that correlation to the Isaiah passage 
and understanding Isaiah and, and him walking upon the mountains of God until he thought that he could exalt himself through his own beauty. He was called one who was, uh, uh, had, had brightness and splendor, Lucifer's name being the shining one. And so this is why we connect these passages together. This is why we connect Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah, and we connect them to the character of Satan. It fits very nicely into the description of Lucifer in Isaiah 14. An accomplished musician, walked upon the holy mountain, perfect since the day he was created, till iniquity was found in him, filled with violence, wisdom corrupted by reason of his beauty, filled and lifted up with pride and cast out of the mountain of God. Satan was an exalted angel of God, given a special place among the angels. And that's what we understand from these passages. Now, we already spoke in Genesis 1 about when, within the scope of the biblical presentation of creation, that everything was created. And we know that it was within that six-day span. And within that time, we would believe thus that the angels were made as well. Recall that Job tells us that the morning stars sang together as the foundations of the worlds were created. Recall also how often angels are associated with light. They are the stars oftentimes in scripture. Lucifer's name, as we've said, means light bearer. Ever and always angels are associated with light. To that end, when in the first day, the Lord said, the father said, let there be light through the word. And there was light. We believe that the moral order was created as we compare that with John chapter 1. But we would also believe that a part of that creation of the light on that first day, let there be light, was the creation of the morning stars. Those which are defined by light. Those which are clothed in light, that being the angels. And Lucifer, being one of the highest in this echelon of angelic beings until the day that his perfections lifted him up with pride, corrupted his wisdom, and iniquity was found in him, would be one that was created on that day. He was thus, following his pride, cast out of heaven, and he made himself the enemy of God. And so we ask the question, okay, when did he fall? If he was created on day one with the other angels, when did he fall? Well, naturally, we don't know, except this. We know it happened, not just between when he was created in Genesis 3, but really between the end of the seventh day in Genesis 3. Why would we presume that? Well, recall I spoke about this a little bit in Genesis 1. We would believe that everything that happened after the seventh day, or everything that happened within the span of that seven days was and remained perfect. Why? Because in the sixth day, at the end of that sixth day, when God looked at everything as, as, as he had made it and that he made, he designated it very good, right? And it was very good. Now, God could not have called his creation very good if, in fact, at that point in time, Lucifer and the angels that followed him in rebellion had already become iniquitous. It's an inference, but I think it's a safe one. Thus, more specifically, we would believe that Lucifer's fall happened sometime after the creation week, but before Genesis chapter 3. And recall, finally, we don't really know how long that is. Why don't we know? Well, God had already created time. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So he had created time. But following the very clear timetable of the creation week, we don't have a lot of insight into how long the time span was in the creation to account. 
We already wrestled with that a little bit in Genesis 2, asking if the events therein happened during the creation week or after the creation week. And my general sensibility of the things that happened was that they happened during the creation week, if you recall my reasoning on that. But the only way to measure time is change, right? Change from night to day. Now, we have clocks. That's handy. So we kind of measure time by calendars and clocks. But think about it from an actual fundamental standpoint. What is it? How is it that we are able to measure time? Well, if, if, if you were to have traveled on the Mayflower to the United States, and you were to have learned the language of the native peoples here, and they were trying to orient themselves to time, they would orient themselves to a number of moons or a number of seasons. It has been six winters since such and such happened. It has been ten moons since such and such happened. They would orient themselves to time based upon change. Change is what is necessary to orient ourselves to time. Now, we're not told days or, or age, right? Young to old. Generations, thus. It has been six generations, my grandfather's grandfather, right? And because of the number of generations, we can orient ourselves somewhat to time. We are not told days, months, or years in Genesis 2. The earth was not yet under the curse, which means things weren't dying yet, right? And if things were not dying yet because age, the, the, the breakdown that comes with age or the breakdown of death is something which it was a part of the curse. Death came through sin, and man brought sin. Man has not sinned yet, therefore there has been no death. And in that there has been no death, we don't really have a measure of change and age. So we don't know how long Genesis chapter 2 was. Again, I make the general, it's my general sense that it happened fairly quickly. But for all we know, Adam and Eve lived in that place for a million years and didn't age a day, and nothing broke down, and everything lived. Now, there's one reason why I don't believe that that's the case. As I said, I have a general sensibility, but there is one reason. And the reason why I believe these events happened relatively quickly is that Adam and Eve did not have children prior to their fall. Something which we would have expected to happen at least relatively quickly when we look into the scriptures in their children, most of their children and most of the people in that early generation before, before Genesis 11, uh, they had their first children around the age of 30, some 60. Of course, they lived to be nearly 1,000 years old, right? So that was still pretty young in their lives. But what we recognize is that 30 to 60 years, so that's relatively soon if, you know, if you're talking about not really aging, and they had not had children yet. So we would believe that they fell, that the fall happened, that Satan's fall and then man's fall happened relatively soon after the creative order got rolling. And, and then as we, we talk about the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we'll see everything. And then what do we find in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1? Immediately after the account of the fall and the curse, we see Adam and Eve starting to have children, right? So that being said we would understand then that, that very likely it was a fairly short amount of time between the end of the creation week and when the fall took place. Thus, there was that period of time when Satan would have fallen and then at that point devised his plan to um, bring down Adam and Eve. Now, why would he do that? That's the final thing that we need to talk about as far as Satan is concerned before we wrap it up today.
we already have insight into Satan's internal motivation. His wisdom was corrupted because of his beauty. He was lifted up with pride. He sought to overthrow God and to establish his own kingdom. But what does man have to do with it? Why did he have to come and ruin everything for mankind? And this comes down to the character of a kingdom itself. How is it that Satan could actually compete with God? How is it that he could actually exalt himself above God? How is it that he could bring about the destruction of God and his own exaltation? And this comes down to the fact that what he would need would be a kingdom. Now, the concept of a kingdom in the Bible is one which has a subset of requirements. If I want to be a king over a kingdom, I'm going to need three primary things. Number one, I'm going to need the right to rule. Number two, I'm going to need a realm over which to rule. And then number three, I'm going to need the will to exercise the right over that realm. Now, God established from the very beginning his kingdom. He created the universe. He created a realm over which to rule. He created man as the crown of his creation. And then he delegated the dominion of that created universe to mankind, telling him to, to, to take care of it and to, be, and, and to use it for the sake of his flourishing. By virtue of God's creative work, he had the right to rule. He exercised that right over his, over his creation through mankind so that man was given the, the sub-rule over the created world. And Satan wants to challenge God and challenge God's kingdom. God sovereignly chose not to destroy Satan when Satan rebelled. Rather, he cast him out of heaven and sent him into what we would call the created order, the material realm. Now, God's kingdom is dependent upon mankind because mankind is the one that he has given dominion in his theocratic kingdom. So if Satan can take mankind and can, can, can cause mankind to follow him rather than God, then Satan can take man and everything over which man has dominion, the created order, and that can thus become Satan's kingdom. So Satan has this agency, he has this will, he has the will to rule, but no right to rule, and he has nothing over which to rule. If he can cause mankind to follow him, he will gain both the right to rule and the, and the, the realm over which to rule. And he already certainly has the will to exercise that right. So he can defeat God. And this is where man thus comes in. If man has dominion over the created order and he submits himself to Satan's dominion, then Satan will have a kingdom. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God already set forth the conditions of man's authority in the kingdom. He would dress and keep the garden. He would walk and commune with God. There was one condition that man had, one prohibition, and that was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, that they may not eat of that fruit, and in the day that they did, they would surely die. So if Satan could convince man to reject the authority of God, to reject this, symbol, this singular prohibition, to rebel against it, to step outside of God's authority, and submit himself instead to Satan's authority, then Satan would have his realm, and he would have his right. And he, he would have his competing kingdom. All that would be left then would be to 
to bring that kingdom to absolute fruition through causing God to fail at his purposes. And the moment that God failed at his purposes, God would not be God. And if God is not God, then Satan can take that place. And so Satan could actually exalt himself above the throne of God. So it is that Satan, with his goal in mind, possessed a serpent, a beast more subtle than the other beasts of the field, with the goal of gaining for himself a kingdom. You say, well, pastor, didn't he kind of do that? So did God lose? God has not lost. We'll talk more about that on the other side of this. What happens now when the kingdom is yielded? Because you know that that's where we're going. And that'll set the stage for the rest of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And that's what we'll continue to look at as we walk from week to week. Satan will enact his plan. Will man be convinced to cast off the authority of God? What does it mean for us today? Come back next time and we'll keep walking through it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.